So, um, Jesus in the temple is today's theme, and we continue to follow the life of Jesus as described by John in the fourth gospel, in his own particular style, which we've noted is quite unlike the style of the other three gospels. John has his own distinctive way of helping us confront who Jesus is and prompting us to believe in him. In chapter 1, he has taken us back to the absolute uncreated beginning of things and shown us that the Son of God was there as part of the Godhead, the Trinity. He has then taken us to the time of creation and shown us that the Son of God was there, making everything that was made. He has taken us to the unique event of incarnation and shown us that it was the Son of God who was born there, as the infant Jesus, fully human, fully divine. He has shown us that he was not recognized for who he was, who he is, and often mistaken for other prophets. In chapter 2, he has taken us to the wedding at Cana, where he strengthened the faith of his disciples by changing water into wine and telling them something about love and faith and obedience. And now, John takes us with Jesus as he goes up from Capernaum, Capernaum which was to become the base from which he operated throughout his earthly ministry, up from there to the temple in Jerusalem. And here John describes for us another very famous event in the earthly life of Jesus, where Jesus is so angered by what he encounters that he proceeds to use force to clear the temple of its offense. Chronologically, the other Gospels place this cleansing of the temple towards the end of Jesus' life on earth, in the time leading up to the crucifixion. Whereas John records this event at the beginning of his public ministry, some three years earlier, it may therefore be that there was more than one event, that there was more than one cleansing of of the temple, that there were at least two separate occasions when Jesus took offense at what was going on in the temple and made his feelings unmistakably clear. But Jesus has a history with the temple. And before we look in detail at what is happening here in this passage and what it tells us about Jesus and our own relationship to him, let's take a step back and remember that Jesus has this history Let's think about what would be in the mind of Jesus as he made his approach towards Jerusalem and the temple. When we met online for prayer yesterday morning, the passage that Linda focused our attention on was Psalm 122, one of the Psalms of Ascent, and and Linda's made reference to it again this morning. It's written to be sung on the way up to Jerusalem to the temple, and it reads like this. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the thrones of judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. 
May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. So Jesus, like all Jewish people, is first of all familiar with this scriptural idea of the temple set apart as the designated house of the Lord. The temple in the abstract is a venerated concept of where God lives and has chosen to meet with the the people. And as we read there, the strong associations with the temple are those large statements he has made to them about Jerusalem, about worship, about holiness, judgment, peace, security, and prosperity. But the temple is not just an idea. It's also a real place that Jewish people are encouraged and instructed to make pilgrimage to and to visit, especially at the time of the Feast of the Passover. And we know specifically from elsewhere in the Bible that Jesus has been there before. This is not his first visit to the temple. In his early infancy, his parents had taken Jesus to the temple for the ceremony of Mary's purification after childbirth and for the dedication of their firstborn to the Lord God. We read about this in Luke chapter 2, where we read also that this is where both Simeon and Anna recognized him and worshipped him as the promised Messiah. Later in the same chapter, Luke tells us that several years later, when he was 12, he again went up to Jerusalem with his parents, this time for the festival of the Passover. For Jewish boys in particular, the age of 12 is, of course, highly significant. It's the time of bar mitzvah, their coming of age, the beginning of their life as a Jewish adult. Once the Passover festival is over, you'll know the story, his parents head for home in a large extended family group, assuming that Jesus is with them somewhere in the convoy. But instead, the boy Jesus, the now emerging man Jesus, has stayed behind in Jerusalem. And when they discover he is missing, Mary and Joseph head back to Jerusalem and try to find him. It's not a simple task. We read that it was three days before they were able to track him down. We can only imagine the level of their anxiety by that time. And significantly, the place that they find him is the temple itself, where we read, he was sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And then the answer that must have taken their breath away. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. So when Jesus returns to the temple in Jerusalem as a man of 30, again at the time of the festival of the Passover, we can assume that because of the pattern of religious observance in his family, and and, and what he's followed himself, he's been to Jerusalem at Passover many times in the intervening years. In addition, 
we know that he's coming back to a place that's been of great importance to him at key points in his life. But most importantly, he is returning to a place that he regards as his own home. Being God, coming to the house of God. There are some things we should note about the temple and the Passover and the very strong connection they have with each other. The temple was the place ordained by God as the house of prayer and worship, but it was also the place where God had chosen to interact most intimately with the people, the place where in the inner sanctum, what they called the Holy of Holies, God himself became present to the high priest at an appointed time. The Holy of Holies at the heart of the temple, the holiest place of all for Jewish people. That could only be entered once per year at the festival of Yom Kippur, and even then only by the high priest acting on behalf of all the tribes of Israel. Even entrance to the temple precincts required what they called ritual purity. You had to be clean. There had to be an absence of bodily emissions in order to be allowed into the inner court of the temple and closer to the divine presence. The Passover festival was a celebration of the escape of the Jewish people from captivity in Egypt, as recorded in the book of Exodus. Their escape into the wilderness, led by Moses, follows the final and most brutal of the ten plagues inflicted on them by Pharaoh. This was the slaughter of the firstborn child in every household. The Jewish people escape the slaughter by following God's instruction to daub the blood of a lamb over the doorways of their houses. And as a result, the angel of death passes over, passes over their houses, and their firstborn children are spared. It is after their escape from this bondage and once their subsequent years of wandering in the desert are completed that Solomon builds the first temple. Its construction is described in the first book of Kings. The second temple was rebuilt by the Jewish people returning from their next captivity as described in Ezra. The temple that Jesus is familiar with, however, is a third temple. It's known as Herod's Temple. And construction of that temple began in 19 BC and continued for a mere 46 years. There must be something about the very nature of building projects that tend towards delay. But when Jesus lived in Israel, the temple was more or less complete, just some minor snagging left to be finished off perhaps although it was not finally finished until 64 AD, and a mere six years after that, it was completely demolished. The connection between the temple and the Passover is underlined by the fact that the major ritual that took place in the temple was the daily offering of blood sacrifices by the high priest to God a constant reminder of the blood of the lamb that had secured their freedom from Egypt all those years previously. And it was typical, as we know, for animals to be sacrificed to God to atone for the sins of the people. So on his way up to Jerusalem from Capernaum in John chapter 2, Jesus is a man already very familiar with both the festival of the Passover and the nature and purpose of the temple. 
He has attended both many times previously, but as we have seen, it is much more than that. The temple is God's house, and every time he returns there, he is returning home to his own house. But this visit is different. There's something very different happening on this occasion. This is his first visit since he was baptized. It's the first visit since his public ministry has begun. It's the first visit since the time to make himself known to the world has arrived. And upon entering the temple, he immediately sets to work. Because when on this occasion he enters the temple, the place where purity was supposed to be paramount, the place where intimacy with God was supposed to be nurtured, he finds, not just in the surrounding precincts, but right inside the temple itself, people selling oxen and sheep and doves for sacrifice. Perhaps this was for the convenience of those who travelled from the countryside and could not bring their sacrifices with them. But more likely, it was for convenience of the traders themselves to help them maximise the money they gained honestly or dishonestly from their trade. He also finds right inside the temple a financial exchange, people changing money into the currency required to pay for the service of the tabernacle and no doubt making money, as much money as they could from the transactions. Jesus, as we read, is outraged by this. He takes immediate direct action. Firstly, he takes it upon himself to drive the sheep and the oxen and the people selling them out of the temple. One of the commentators notes that he didn't at any stage in his earthly life use force to drive anyone into the temple. He only did it to drive out those who showed obvious disrespect for the temple, those who were guilty of invading and traducing his own home. Secondly, he takes it upon himself to throw the small change of the money men to the ground and to overthrow their makeshift banks, their tables. He uses force and shows his displeasure against those who seek to make financial gain from the ancient faith of the Jewish people. And thirdly, he tells those that are selling doves the only type of sacrifice that the poorest people could afford to get rid of them, to take them away outside. So we need to remember why Jesus was so outraged here is related to what we said earlier about the temple. The temple was the place set aside by God for his most intimate interactions with the Israelites. The temple was the place and the medium of intercourse between God and Israel. There God revealed himself to them. There they presented themselves and their services to him. It was the place where from time to time the high priest was able on their behalf to come into the holy presence of the very God himself. And there was this holiest of all places, contaminated by greed and exploitation, reduced, as Jesus suggests elsewhere, to a den of thieves. Do not make my father's house a marketplace, he says. In calling God his father, he is unequivocal in calling himself God's son, the Messiah. And being God's son, being one who was with him in the beginning, he cannot bear to see the place set aside for his worship and for his interaction with his chosen people 
profaned in this way. He purges the temple of its defilement without the assistance of anyone else. His family, friends, his disciples, they stand well back. They don't join in, nor do we have any evidence that they're cheering him on from the sidelines. Instead, we are told that they are observers, onlookers. But onlookers cause to reflect and remember the words of the psalmist in Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. Or as the translation of the message would suggest, I am consumed by love for you. I am madly in love with you. And here we see that unbridled passion for God's house acted out. He also faces no resistance in purging the temple. The outrage fueled by his godly passion conveys, it seems, an irresistible authority in that moment. Despite the fact that there would have been temple guards who could have been called into action, that doesn't happen. His his authority cannot be resisted in the moment, although a few moments later, there are those in the temple that day, once the dust has literally settled, who begin to question not so much what he's done, but his authority to do it. Who do you think you are coming in here behaving in that way? What sign can you show us to prove that you have the authority to act like this? So they don't take issue with what Jesus has done. The need for drastic change seems perhaps apparent to them too. Instead, they challenge his status, his position, his authority. And Jesus' response is the verbal equivalent of another table being overturned, another bomb going off. Destroy this, ta- destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They think he's talking about the physical building they are standing in, whereas he is foretelling his own death and resurrection. Just as the 12-year-old Jesus had been with his parents, so too the 30-year-old Jesus is with this temple throng. They did not understand what he was saying to them. So coming now to the part of the sermon where we try to crystallize what it is we are to learn from this passage and apply to our own lives. I want to suggest there are two true things arising here which appear at first to be contradictory. First, Jesus comes to restore everything. Secondly, Jesus comes to turn everything upside down. And perhaps what I want to suggest is that Jesus comes to restore everything by turning everything upside down and to bring about a transformation altogether more astonishing than the transformation of the water into wine. So if we think about Jesus coming to restore everything, in cleansing the temple, Jesus demonstrated his authority in the face of corruption at the heart of man's relationship with God. As God and as the Son of God, he has every right to correct the abuses taking place in the temple. He has the desire and the right to drive men and animals out of the temple courts to remove corruption and restore holiness in order that the intimacy God intended with his people 
might be restored. But let's not keep this at arm's length from ourselves, something we can regard as coming from another time and place and scarcely relevant to us. Just as he had the right to deal with the profaning of the temple, in the same way as God and as the Son of God, he has the right to correct the abuses taking place in our hearts. Just as we may take a fairly relaxed view of our own sinfulness, of the birds nesting in our hair, or the foul rag and bone shop occupying so much of our heart. He has the desire and the power to drive sinfulness out of our innermost beings, to cleanse the temple of our hearts and souls and minds. As the one who has created us, he has the right to offer us freely from his own heart a route back to wholeness to remove corruption and restore holiness in order that the intimacy God intended with you and with me and everyone around us might be restored. As we will read in the next chapter of John's Gospel, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So Jesus comes to restore everything. But he also comes to restore everything by turning everything upside down. If we take the image of the upturned tables, it's not just a demonstration of Jesus' authority in the, in the face of corruption in the temple or in our own hearts. It's a powerful image of the way in which Jesus turns everything upside down. Because in this incident, as throughout his ministry, Jesus symbolizes that with his incarnation and with his death and resurrection, which are foretold or anticipated in this passage, everything is now utterly changed, totally transformed, A new and beautiful dispensation is born, and the old dispensation is now redundant. Jesus overthrows the tables in the temple and stands everything on its head. For with the life and work of Jesus, there's no longer any need to celebrate the Passover. Jesus is now our Passover. He is the Lamb of God. It's his shed blood that is the guarantee of the salvation, not just of the Jewish people, but of all mankind. As John the Baptist had declared in chapter 1, ahead of Jesus' baptism, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And just as there's no longer any need to celebrate Passover, there is no longer any need for the temple. For Jesus is now our temple. His broken, then resurrected body has become that body of Christ in which we participate through the church together with all who put their trust in him and all who, as Mary urged at Cana, do whatever he tells tells them. We read about this fulfillment of the body of Christ in the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Then I saw... 
a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. Remember, God's dwelling place was in that holy of holies where only one person could go once a year. God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And if we go forward a few verses in that chapter, we read, and this is the voice of John, who's written the book, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. So no need for Passover, no need for the temple, and no need either for a high priest to intercede for us with God, for Jesus is now our high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, which is the subject for another day, I think. Jesus is now our high priest whose death and resurrection have done away with the need for the constant need for animal sacrifices to deal with our sin. We read about this in Hebrews chapter 7. There have been many priests, many of those priests since the death, because death prevents them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. May we let these words resonate with us in praise and thanksgiving in the week ahead, as we recall God's desire for the holiness of all his people, and remember that by living and dying and rising again, Jesus has stood everything on its head, our prophet, our priest, and our king.